Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. This podcast of Perspectives Asia with Professor Mark Elliott is presented by the Griffith Asia Institute and the Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art. Levine Ford, Chancellor of Griffith University, Professor Ian O'Connor, Vice-Chancellor and President, Griffith University, Professor Roy Webb, former Vice-Chancellor of Griffith University, Mr. Alan Grummet, Consul General of the Philippines, Professor S.D. Singh, Honorary Consul of India for Queensland. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we're gathered tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Another wonderful evening at the Goma. I think last time it was freezing, do you recall? This time it's beautiful. I even saw a sort of courageous peach blossom on the way. Uh, my name is Haig Padapan. I'm the director, acting director of the Griffith Asia Institute, and I'd like to welcome you tonight to this fascinating presentation. Um, I don't know about you, if, but if anyone doubts the power of words, one need only say Silk Road to get all these wonderful images of mountains and precious artifacts and deserts and exciting adventures. Um, for me, Silk Road also reminds me of the great burden and benefaction that is history. Moreover, it reminds us, I think, of the intimate, so, so intimately close nexus between what is political, social, cultural, and religious, the difficulty of untangling these things. And it's primarily because of this intimate link that the Griffith Asia Institute initiated this seminar project. The Perspective Asia series was launched in 2005 by the Griffith Asia Institute and the Queensland Art Gallery's Australian Centre of Asian Pacific Art to explore the issues of contemporary culture, politics and society in our region. And hence, I'd like to welcome you tonight to this wonderful presentation, The Old Silk Road in China Today, um, the fate of Xinjiang. We are very fortunate to have Professor Mark C. Elliott, who is the Mark Schwartz Professor of Chinese and Inner Asian History in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University. His first book is The Manchu Way, The Eight Banners and Ethnicity in Late Imperial China, Stanford University, 2001, which is an influential study of the new Qing history. Excuse my Mandarin. Uh, his latest book is Emperor... Chin Long, Son of Heaven, Man of the World, by Longwen, 2009. He's also the author of numerous articles. Educated at Yale and University of California, Berkeley, Professor Elliott studied for many years in Taiwan, mainland China, and Japan. Ladies and gentlemen, please make welcome Professor Elliott. Let me begin by saying how delighted I am uh, to be here. I've, I've had the chance just in the last uh, half an hour or so to talk to a number of, of you in the, uh, in the lobby, a uh, very, uh, very nice reception. Uh, and uh, so some of you already know this is my first time uh, to, uh, to come to Australia, my first time in, in Brisbane. I've come with my family. Uh, we are overwhelmed uh, by your beautiful country and this wonderful city. Uh, when I I was uh, thinking this would be a, a kind of a sleeper topic. Uh, 
and uh, owing to the rather to the very unfortunate recent events, uh, Xinjiang is not as uh, little known as it was when I proposed this topic uh, uh, a few months ago. Still, there are a few potential problems. Uh, one is that not many people are entirely sure where Xinjiang is. Uh, another is that even if people know where Xinjiang is, they're not really quite sure how to even say Xinjiang. Uh, and another is, uh, has to do with confusion over the name of, uh, or the identity of the people who live in this part of the world, where they came from or why uh, they should be citizens of the People's Republic of China when they don't really look very much like our usual idea of Chinese. So I'm going to start with some basics, uh, outline some of the history of this place. Uh, and I am a historian, so most of my comments will, will uh, deal with the period before the 20th century, uh, the last uh, uh, 10, 15 minutes or so. Uh, I'll say something about the recent past, uh, about the current situation and uh, future prospects. Now, Xinjiang is the name given uh, to the most westerly region of the People's Republic of China, which you uh, see here highlighted in yellow, uh, which borders on eight different countries, Mongolia, Russia, India, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. I sometimes joke with friends that Xinjiang would be a lot easier to remember if we just called it Xinjiangistan and we're done with it. This is a vast area. It covers 1.6 million square kilometers uh, and accounts for about uh, one-sixth of uh, China's national territory. So just to put this in some kind of comparative perspective for you, I, I did a little research. This is not something I knew before I came. Xinjiang is just a little smaller than Queensland, uh, which is 1.73 million square kilometers or so, Wikipedia says. Uh, now, Xinjiang uh, shares much of the same forbidding climate uh, as uh, the outback, although I haven't been there yet. I'm, I'm going there. Uh, I don't expect to find this kind of desert scenery, but there is desert, of course, uh, uh, and uh, the same kind of red look uh, as uh, parts of uh, what uh, I guess you call the red center. Now, the high mountains uh, that uh, surround uh, the southern part of Xinjiang, uh, the Pamirs, the Kunlun, and the Himalayas, uh, catch all of the precipitation that might otherwise fall in the region. So this is a very, very dry place, uh, especially in the south. Uh, in terms of uh, products and industry, uh, it's best known uh, for melons and grapes, for jade and silk, mutton and wool, and uh, more recently for cotton, uh, petroleum, and the nuclear testing facility at the dry lake bed at Lop Nor. Apart from being further from the ocean than any other place on Earth, and here obviously the comparison with Queensland is no longer meaningful, uh, Xinjiang is doubtless best known as being at the heart of the old Silk Road. Uh, all the main uh, Silk Road routes uh, between China uh, and the West, uh, between Central Asia, China, Central Asia, and the West passed through what is now Xinjiang. So really for uh, more than two millennia, uh, Xinjiang figured as a fertile meeting ground of peoples and cultures. And the evidence of these contacts is very much in, in evidence still 
Uh, those of you in the audience who have been to Xinjiang know, of course, uh, what I'm talking about, uh, whether they are sites uh, above ground or below ground, in the cities and towns, uh, in the faces of the people you meet uh, when you go there, uh, you can tell uh, that many different kinds of people have passed through this place. Xinjiang is divided broadly into two main parts, separated by the Tianshan Mountains. Those mountains are right here. And uh, broadly, we speak of four main regions. Uh, the northern region, which is called Zungaria, you can see uh, that written here. Uh, the southern region, the in the middle of which is the Taklamakan Desert, sometimes it's called the Tarim Basin. Uh, another smaller valley here with the cities of Turpan, which is below sea level, and Hami, these were older kingdoms. And then a very small valley here called the Ili Valley, uh, which opens up uh, right into Semirechia, into what is today Kazakhstan. Now, uh, the northern region, oh, here we have another, just another map to, to show you a little bit more clearly. So uh, southern Xinjiang, Kashgaria is sometimes called, northern Xinjiang here, uh, which is called Zungaria, this eastern part uh, near Turpan or Turfan, and then this little valley right here. Uh, the uh, northern region historically uh, has uh, been home to nomadic peoples and their uh, flocks. It's mostly grassland, uh, there's forest, uh, rolling steppe, uh, beautiful lakes and, and mountains. Uh, this region has, until uh, relatively recently, uh, all of these different four regions were not that much connected with each other. They each had their own separate uh, character and people. And Zungaria in the north uh, was uh, much different from uh, the uh, dry desert part of southern Xinjiang. It uh, named Zungaria, got this name really only in the 17th century or so, uh, named for a nomadic group that dominated uh, this part of the world uh, at that time. Uh, there aren't any major population centers uh, in Zungaria, uh, with the exception of a few cities on the southern rim, uh, one of which uh, is the capital of Xinjiang, uh, the city of Urumqi. Uh, tourists have begun to discover the beauty uh, of this uh, northern part of Xinjiang, which still remains pretty much off the beaten path. Uh, most Silk Road travelers, the Silk Road tours I have led to China, for instance, uh, we don't really see very much of this part of the country. We head uh, rather to the south, uh, to uh, the oasis towns around the Tarim Basin, uh, of which there are six, so sometimes uh, the area is called Altashar, uh, which means six cities in, uh, in, in Uyghur. Uh, and these towns, the biggest of them is, is uh, Kashgar, uh, in Chinese called Kashu. Uh, Kashgar is here. Uh, so this has given the name uh, Kashgaria uh, to, uh, to the region. Uh, and these have long been important oasis stops on uh, the Silk Road uh, that leads uh, to, uh, to uh, cities uh, within China. Uh, agriculture here is uh, extremely limited uh, because uh, because of the uh, very dry uh, climate, so it's only where the oases can get snowmelt that they're able uh, to do farming. And the people living here were not nomads. They were, they were town dwellers, uh, shopkeepers, merchants, 
uh, and uh, agriculturalists for, uh, for the most part. So these two subregions, Dzungaria in the north and Kashgaria in the south, together with uh, Turpan Hami and then the Ili uh, Valley here, uh, these four zones together make up modern Xinjiang. And as I say, they're quite distinct. Before 1680, they were never politically unified. Uh, Dzungaria was much more tightly connected to the steppe world centered on Mongolia. Kashgaria and the Ili Valley were much more part of Central Asia uh, and the larger Islamic world. Uh, and Turpan, although a Muslim kingdom, was pretty closely tied to uh, Chinese uh, dynasties uh, to the east. How all of these areas came to be unified and then brought within the borders of China is a story that I guess relatively, relatively few people know uh, much about, um, even in China itself. Uh, uh, it doesn't appear, this story doesn't really appear in newspaper accounts of events uh, taking place in Xinjiang, though it's obviously of relevance to those events. And it's for this reason that I've chosen to uh, provide uh, a little bit more information about this. Anyway, that's one question out of the way about where is Xinjiang. Uh, second problem then, as I said, is that nobody knows how to say Xinjiang. Um, we did have, I did have Chinese characters up here, but unfortunately the old Mac PC transfer, uh, the characters got garbled, so I had to take them out. Xinjiang is spelled uh, a number of, of different ways. You might see, uh, depending on the period in which uh, the thing you're reading uh, was uh, printed. Uh, the uh, characters for Xinjiang mean something like new frontier. Uh, the Jiang part meaning frontier, the Xin part meaning new. Uh, the name was given formally in 1884 when Xinjiang was made a province of uh, the Qing Empire. Uh, but the region was, uh, began to be called Xinjiang even in the 1700s uh, after it was joined to the Qing. Uh, so it's not a recent name. Uh, by any means. Uh, if we're going to be strict about it, Xinjiang itself is actually not the full name. The full name, as you see here, the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, or XUAR, which was formally constituted in 1995. And the XUAR is, uh, as most of you probably know, one of five autonomous regions uh, in China, the others being uh, the Tibetan Autonomous Region, Inner Mongolia, uh, the Ningxiahui Autonomous Region, and the Guangxi Zhuang Autonomous Region. I think it's, I always try to remind my students that when you take all the territory of all of these autonomous regions and you add it all up together, this is 45% of China's land. So although these territories tend to be much more sparsely populated than China proper, uh, in terms of their uh, importance to the geo-body, if you will, to the constitution of a national unity, they are of great significance. On some maps and uh, some reports, you may see the region referred to in an entirely different way as East Turkestan. And there's no reason why anybody who didn't already know should be able to make the identification between East Turkestan and Xinjiang, but these are one and the same. Uh, the uh, uh, Term is never applied by uh, the Chinese government, however, to Xinjiang. Uh, if, if you're in China, uh, you, you are pretty much required to say, uh, to use the term uh, Xinjiang. Uh, the reason being that if you refer to it being East Turkestan, you're implying, whether you know it or not, 
to some people, uh, implying that East Turkestan is part of some larger Turkestan and not part of China or not only part of China. Uh, and uh, so use of the term East Turkestan is often interpreted as a signal of support for the cause of Uyghur or Xinjiang independence. On the other hand, then, uh, or for the very same reasons, uh, those movements that uh, support uh, the uh, idea of uh, Xinjiang independence uh, will never use the word Xinjiang. And uh, very, I find very often in my exchanges with Uyghurs outside of China that they refuse to use the term Xinjiang, and they're offended, or at least made a little uncomfortable if I do. They much prefer East Turkestan, and they would much prefer to talk to me in, Chinese, in, in English rather than in Chinese, even if uh, they, as, as all of them do, uh, know Chinese. Uh, so this is a point of some uh, sensitivity on both sides. For them, uh, Xinjiang is a term of colonial opprobrium. Uh, it is to be avoided. Here we have a web shot of one of many uh, of these uh, kinds of organizations uh, that are uh, on, the, uh, on the Internet. Now, you see the name Uyghur here. There are different ways of spelling Uyghur as well. I've mentioned the name Uyghur a few times. This gets us to the third question about who lives in Xinjiang. Uh, now, the total population of, of the region uh, is currently close to about 20 million. Again, another uh, thing to, we can remember that uh, the population there is about the same, just a little less, I guess, than the population of Australia. Uh, it's, however, in Chinese terms, not all that many people. It's about equivalent to the population of Shanghai uh, and counts for just 1.6% of all of uh, China's population. So uh, it's actually one of the emptiest parts of the country. Uh, the uh, most notable thing probably I would say about uh, the population of Xinjiang is uh, the, their ethnic diversity. Of uh, these uh, 20 million, about 45% uh, as you see here are Uyghur, 41% uh, Han Chinese, 7% or so are Kazakh, another Central Asian group, 5% uh, are Hui. The Hui are the Chinese Muslims who live everywhere in China, including in Xinjiang, uh, and 2% uh, these groups and uh, 13 other uh, so-called minority uh, nationalities or ethnic groups in China. Now, this diversity is certainly nothing new uh, in, in, in Xinjiang. As I've suggested, because of its position on the Silk Road, uh, the region has always been uh, a crossroads of peoples from east and west. It remains so today. Uh, when you go uh, to Xinjiang, uh, wherever you go, uh, you find a remarkable array, really quite, quite stunning, uh, of uh, different faces, uh, different languages, uh, different alphabets, different kinds of architecture, a very different feel, a very different kind of community from eastern China. And uh, this diversity leads many visitors. I've heard this very often from people uh, whom I lead on tours. It was my own reaction the very first time I went there in 1983. Uh, you feel like you're not in China anymore. It doesn't feel the sky looks different. Uh, the, the people look different. The food is very different. Uh, it's uh, a, a very different place from the interior of China. Another set of uh, faces. But, of course, Xinjiang is China, uh, and it is becoming more Chinese all the time. 
uh, population dynamics in this part of the world uh, have been quite fluid in uh, the last uh, several decades. Uh, just 60 years ago, uh, about 75% uh, of the population uh, was Uyghur, and only about 15% were uh, Han Chinese, although at, at lunch today with Professor Mercaris, uh, he uh, reminded me that these figures are very difficult to really control with any certainty. Uh, the number may be as little as 6 or 7%. One sees different kinds of figures quoted. Uh, still, you get a sense of how uh, the Han were a distinct minority uh, just uh, 60, 50, 60 years ago, and how much this has changed now, where it's almost evenly split between Uyghurs uh, and uh, uh, the Han. Most of the uh, Han Chinese live in cities. Uh, most Uyghurs do not. Most Uyghurs live outside of the major urban centers, so that in the cities, when you go to a city like Urumqi, most of the people you tend to see on the street will, in fact, be Han Chinese. Seventy-five percent of the population of Urumqi is Han, and uh, the rest is mostly Uyghur. Uh, Kazakhs, generally, uh, you won't find in cities at all. Uh, some way, uh, though, as well. Uh, the only, city, only cities of any size with majority Uyghur populations are Kashgar uh, and Khotan uh, in the south. Uh, and uh, the situation in Kashgar uh, is uh, changing uh, today. Uh, the, um, some of you, no doubt, have read in the paper about uh, efforts to uh, preserve some of the old parts of Kashgar by tearing them down and uh, rebuilding them in uh, a style that uh, looks much neater and much more modern, much more hygienic. Uh, I mean, there's, there are different uh, advantages uh, to replacing old mud dwellings with new apartment buildings, but there are, of course, also significant things that are lost. And by redoing the city in this way, uh, it makes it much more friendly to Han migration. So I think it's quite likely I, I, I wouldn't want to put a time schedule on it, but that Kashgar too will become a Han-majority city uh, before uh, very many more years. All of these changes I'll come back to uh, at the end of my talk uh, because they carry very, uh, very important implications for Xinjiang's future. Now, some of you may be wondering, who are these Uyghurs anyway? Never heard of them before. How do you even say Uyghur? Uh, Wiggles, Wudgies. I mean, one, hear, one hears all kinds of very strange mispronunciations. Although most newspaper articles are careful to contain some kind of parenthetical line about who the Uyghurs are, and we say Uyghur, W-E-E-G-U-R. Um, one hears more about the Uyghurs these days, even before the uh, recent unrest. Uh, the Uyghurs were in the news because uh, the U.S. has been. Uh, in my opinion, illegally uh, detaining 17 Uyghurs uh, in the notorious facility in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, some of them were recently uh, released uh, to go live a much nicer life in Bermuda. Uh, and uh, they made the news. Uh, no doubt uh, many uh, viewers of late-night television got their first introduction uh, to the Uyghurs on the John Stewart show. Uh, there was some pre-Olympics violence in Xinjiang last August, uh, uh, but for people who missed that, I think it was very hard to uh, overlook uh, the recent terrible violence uh, in Urumqi. Still, there's a lot of confusion about 
the Uyghurs uh, who they are. I think part of the reason for this confusion is that there was a Uyghur kingdom once, about 1,300 years ago, uh, more or less in this same general part of the world. And many people, including many Chinese and many Uyghurs themselves, tend to associate today's Uyghurs with those Uyghurs. Uh, and they draw a straight line uh, between uh, the two peoples. When, in fact, uh, this relationship is not at all well understood. Uh, the name is the same, but today's modern Uyghurs uh, only began using the name Uyghur to describe themselves in any regular systematic way about 80 years ago. Uh, and uh, the name appears a little uh, off, off and on uh, in, in uh, uh, materials we, we find in the late 19th century, but it was not commonly used uh, really until well into the 20th century, either by Uyghurs themselves or by others uh, talking about them. Uh, again, since this point rarely makes it into the newspapers, uh, I'd like to offer a little bit of uh, background here. So the first Uyghurs uh, had to do with this Uyghur kingdom, which was centered on what is modern-day Mongolia, uh, where all Turkic peoples originated from. Uh, and uh, the uh, Uyghurs uh, themselves uh, came from the Orhan Valley, the site of the earliest Turkic inscriptions, the Orhan Valley inscriptions, uh, in the middle of the 8th century. Uh, and like many other Turkic tribes, uh, they were eventually uh, forced to uh, move south and west out of the steppe in different uh, waves of migration. Most of them moved this way. Some of them moved into China. Uh, yet another group moved further to the west and ended up over here. Uh, uh, gradually, of course, the Turks moved further and further west until they ended up in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in Anatolia, uh, where uh, they constituted the base for the modern population of Turkey. Uh, between the 9th and the 13th centuries, uh, CE, uh, we find two different kingdoms with ties to the Uyghurs. Uh, the one with which they are most closely identified thrived in the area near modern Turpan, or Turfan, uh, which is right here. Uh, one center was at uh, or excuse me, at, at Beshvalik here, and another one uh, at uh, Turfan. Um, the uh, Capital was at a place called Kocho, which I, I now this is Kucha, isn't it? Yeah, it's not on this map, but I, I have another slide to show you of uh, Gaotang today, uh, which is right on the Silk Road. Uh, this was a great city, uh, uh, and uh, the uh, state that was run from this place was in many sources sometimes called uh, Uyghuristan uh, uh, at uh, about a thousand years ago. Uh, the uh, area was absorbed by the Mongols in the 13th century. Uh, the city was abandoned uh, then uh, and most of it was actually destroyed around that time. Uh, the inhabitants were uh, dispersed. Uh, some were recruited uh, to work for the Mongol Empire in China. They were noted to be very good scribes, very good with numbers. Uh, so they were brought in to work as accountants. Oops. Uh, other Uyghurs moved west, others moved south around the desert. Uh, and for about 500 years after the decline of the Mongol Empire in the middle of the 14th century, we don't hear anything about Uyghurs 
The word Uyghur, the name, doesn't show up as such, uh, referring to these people anymore. But the memory of uh, the uh, Uyghur kingdom was preserved, uh, most obviously in names for uh, Central Asian uh, peoples. Uh, in Chinese, uh, the Huihui, or, which has been shortened in, in uh, more recent times to Hui, which comes from the uh, old term uh, in Chinese, the Huihu, which was how you said uh, Uyghur in, uh, in Chinese. Uh, very different terms from the modern Chinese word for Uyghur, which is Weiwar, or Weiwarzu, the, the, the Weiwar uh, uh, ethnos. Uh, the term Hui has taken a very specific meaning in modern Chinese. It refers only to Chinese Muslims. It doesn't refer to Turkic Muslims anymore, although it started out meaning that originally. Now, since the area of this Uyghur diaspora that I'm talking about more or less coincides with the region of Xinjiang today, it would seem to be possible to draw a line between uh, the two of them. But there are many differences that separate those Uyghurs from today's Uyghurs. Uh, for one thing, uh, the Uyghur Turks of medieval times looked uh, much different. Uh, they looked much more, uh, if you will, Mongoloid, much more Asian-looking, because they had only recently moved from the Mongolian steppe uh, to the southwest, uh, much more Asian than uh, Uyghurs uh, do today. Uyghurs today are descendants of many, many generations of intermarriage with people of Iranian stock, uh, and just to, uh, the next image will show you people from Central Asia who are, these are, these are images that are taken from uh, frescoes at the cave, caves at Bezeklik, uh, not far away from Gaochang. Uh, these were uh, uh, their, uh, their pictures there. Uh, others came uh, from Central Asia, and you can see the very different portrayal of, of these people, the, the, the uh, somatic differences, the heavy beards, large noses, and so forth. These are Central Asians uh, uh, painted around the same time. Uh, and uh, so it's not that the painter didn't know how to paint big noses or foreign-looking people. It's just that Uyghurs didn't look like this then, whereas today uh, they, excuse me, let me go forward ahead. Uh, they, they tend to look much more uh, Caucasian, uh, much more like uh, Iranian peoples. Another big difference is that medieval Uyghurs were not Muslims. Uh, they had not yet converted to uh, Islam. Uh, they espoused Manichaeism uh, and uh, on two occasions converted to Buddhism. Later they became great patrons of uh, Buddhism. They tolerated Christianity, Nestorian Christianity, uh, but opposed the spread of Islam, in fact, which was then uh, spreading eastward from Persia. Now their language, let me back up a little bit here, It's not letting me back up. There we go. So the Uyghur script uh, was uh, very, very different from the script that is used for uh, the Uyghur language uh, today. Uh, the uh, uh, script was borrowed, as, as, as I, I, I note here, uh, from uh, Sogdian. Uh, so it was a script that actually originated in the Mediterranean and over many centuries uh, made its way uh, eastward. Uh, Uyghur scribes working for the Mongols, in fact, helped to devise the script used for Mongolian. Uh, 
and later on also the script that's used for Manchu. So this was a script that had a very long life. But the Uyghurs themselves, once they converted to Islam, abandoned this script for uh, the Arabic script. And Uyghur today, and for the last 500 years, has been written using the Arabic script with the addition of many, many loan words from Persian and from Arabic. Uh, so in bare bones grammatical terms, there are a lot of similarities between older, uh, Uyghur, the older Uyghur language uh, documents uh, shown here, uh, Uyghur, Uyghur text. Uh, here you can see Uyghurs uh, had a sense of humor uh, from uh, these, these uh, documents unearthed in Central Asia. Uh, so this is all by way of saying that there's a lot of history, a lot of water in between uh, the historic Uyghurs and their modern namesakes. I don't want to say there's no connection between them. Quite obviously, there is a connection. And indeed, the imagined connection between modern Uyghurs and medieval Uyghurs is a very important thing for us to think about. But from a his strictly historical point of view, this connection is very, very complicated and uh, really rather tenuous. It would be a mistake, I think, to regard uh, Uyghurs today is the same as medieval Uyghurs, just as we would not probably regard, say, modern Greeks as the same people as uh, the Greeks of, of the days of Athens and Sparta. So just now I've mentioned two major transformations uh, affecting the basics of Uyghur identity. One is the mixing of different uh, genetic pools, uh, whereby a Turkic people, originally uh, Mongoloid in appearance, gradually came to acquire the features that we associate with Caucasians. Um, the other was the conversion of Central Asian Turks to Islam. Now, this process began in the 10th century. It took a long, long time, about 500 years uh, to complete, uh, and as I say, uh, wrought uh, very uh, far-reaching changes in many aspects of society in the, very, in the different towns of the region. The spread of Islam, you can see, occurred uh, quite late here, the orange uh, Muslim expansion to 1700. This, uh, this map is not quite right. Uh, we, uh, Islam had reached here already by 1600, uh, for sure. Uh, but you can see, compared to uh, its heartland, uh, that it did. Uh, it took uh, a long. Uh, it took its time uh, getting uh, this far to uh, to the east. This led to a much greater integration of uh, this part of Central Asia with Western Asia and the Middle East. One obvious way was, of course, that good Muslims were supposed to make or are supposed to make the Hajj. And uh, so uh, the experiences uh, on their travels to Mecca uh, back and forth uh, of uh, faithful uh, Uyghur, or we really can't call them Uyghurs at this point, we might call them Eastern Turks, um, had a great impact on the cultural, artistic, and intellectual lives of people back in Turkestan. For them, China was a distant place. Few, if any, Eastern Turkey elites knew Chinese or had very much uh, in the way of dealings with uh, China except by way of intermediary merchants who would have come from Western China out their way. All of the historical documents pertaining to this period of Uyghur history and all of Uyghur history up until the 20th century are in uh, a language called Chagatai, recalcitrant remote control here, which uh, uh, was, became the literary language of Central Asia, kind of high uh, Turkic 
tongue, written in Arabic, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, literary, uh, poetic, uh, and historical documents of, uh, of the region are all in, in this language. One reason why uh, this is such a little studied uh, period and little studied people uh, because of the, 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 you need to know essentially, well, you need to know Persian, Turkic, Arabic, and Chinese, and Russian to begin to do work in, uh, in, in this period. So uh, that's a self-selecting group <laughs> to which I do not belong. Uh, the form of Islam followed by the Muslims of Eastern Turkestan, uh, though part of the mainstream Sunni tradition, was highly influenced by uh, Sufism, uh, particularly uh, the teachings of a powerful lineage known as the Naqshbandi, uh, which originated in Bukhara. Uh, and uh, which was brought to the region uh, in, uh, in the 1500s. The uh, Naqshbandi uh, spread uh, to the east and brought uh, Islam to Kashgaria, to the Tarim Basin, uh, during the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, and uh, by uh, 1600 or so uh, had extended their authority over most of uh, the region. Uh, their leaders were known as Hojas, Hoja means master in Persian. Uh, and uh, we don't find very much in the way of big political organization. The oases uh, were really about it. There were no larger khanates formed in this part of Turkestan, unlike in uh, western Turkestan where you have, uh, for example, the Timurid Empire, uh, later uh, turning in, uh, became part of the, the Mughal Empire. Uh, it was the religious networks of the Naqshbandi Khojas that really uh, determined uh, the uh, course of affairs uh, in the region. Sheikhs rather than princes uh, vied with each other for uh, control. They were the ones who profited from trade on the Silk Road. And these two sects in particular, the Black Mountain and the White Mountain sect, uh, when they quarreled, they quarreled not so much over religion as over economics and politics. Now, there's no time, obviously, to go into uh, the, uh, any details over their disputes, but it's important to note them because they contributed directly to the integration of what we now know as Xinjiang with China. This is where that story really begins. Uh, after hundreds of years, when uh, the main dynamic linking eastern Turkestan with the outside world had been east-west across the Pamirs uh, through Tehran, Zaxiana to Persia, Beginning in the 17th and 18th century, this dynamic shifts to a north-south dynamic over the Tian Shan range between Kashgaria and Dzungaria to the north. This really began to heat up uh, in the middle to late uh, 1600s when the leaders of the White Mountain sect uh, became engaged in a fierce struggle with their Black Mountain rivals to whom they were quite closely related. Um, the White Mountain leaders made an appeal to, of all people, the fifth Dalai Lama. So I am talking about Tibet, after all. Uh, and they asked him for assistance against their enemies, uh, the Black Mountain sect. It so happened that one of the uh, allies of the Black Mountain sect was somebody uh, whom the Dalai Lama himself regarded as a political enemy. And so he agreed to offer assistance and called on his own loyal followers, the Dzungar or Western Mongols, to go to the aid of these White Mountain uh, Naqshbandi Sufis. Uh, 
uh, and uh, their leader was a man named Galdan, uh, one of the great nomadic, the last great nomadic warriors. Uh, Galdan, in fact, had trained as a monk in Lhasa. Uh, he had met the Dalai Lama, the fifth Dalai Lama, when he was a boy, uh, but returned to uh, Dzungaria, uh, precisely to the, actually to the Ili Valley, which is where the Dzungars uh, had their headquarters, when his older brother was murdered. So he left Tibet, he went back, uh, made the long journey back uh, to uh, uh, where he uh, originated from, married his sister-in-law, who is now a widow, as uh, uh, Mongol nomads, Mongolian nomads tended to do, uh, and proceeded to build up his forces in a bid to reestablish a new nomadic empire in central Eurasia. And he came very close to succeeding, actually. Uh, he took advantage of the opportunity offered him by the Dalai Lama, took his army south over the mountains, uh, around the desert, defeated the Black Mountain forces that were quartered in Kashgar, chased them out, uh, pursued them over the Pamirs uh, into uh, what is today Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, uh, and placed the White Mountain Hojas in power in Kashgar. And for all of this, the Dalai Lama uh, proclaimed him the Tenjin Boshoktu Khan, the uh, enlightened, life-giving Khan although whether the Black Mountain people regarded him as life-giving or not is, of course, another question. Uh, Galdan, though, was not satisfied with just the nice title. Uh, he wanted a share of revenues from trade on the Silk Road. Uh, he wanted a few thousand White Mountain farmers to go back with uh, him from the south to the north uh, to do agriculture there. And he also wanted the two uh, hostages White Mountain hostages to come with him and take up residence in his own capital to make sure that he didn't get any trouble from uh, people in the south. All of these conditions were met, and the Dzungars, therefore, became masters of this entire region. Uh, both uh, the uh, north and the south, together with the Turpan Hami area and the Ili Valley, Tsungars were the ones, the Western Mongols under Galdan, were the first people to unify Xinjiang. But they didn't hold on to it for very long, only about 60 years. Uh, in, uh, again, we have, a, we have a complicated story here. I'll just uh, be very, very brief about it. Uh, the Tsungars the, the, the had rivals for control over Central Asia, and those rivals were the Manchus. Uh, the Shunjur emperor, shown in the previous slide, uh, being uh, the first uh, Manchu emperor in China. The Manchus, of course, had conquered China in 1644. Uh, the Manchus were very familiar with the problem of the northern frontier. They themselves had invaded from the northern frontier. They knew exactly what it was to do warfare uh, on the steppe. Uh, and they knew how to deal uh, well with the very highly mobile uh, Tsungars. Uh, they also understood the importance of a strong alliance with the Tibetan Buddhist hierarchy. Uh, and in an epic struggle, uh, the Qing, over the course of uh, many decades, eventually uh, managed to, to defeat uh, the Western uh, Mongols, the Tsungars, uh, during the course of three campaigns led by the Qianlong Emperor, uh, shown here. Uh, and uh, the success uh, of the Manchus uh, put an end once and for all to Dzungar hopes uh, for a renewed Mongol empire and drew the Manchus beyond the steppe directly into Central Asian politics, where they originally had no intention of going. Uh, the, 
political fallout uh, from the Tsongkhar defeat was considerable. The Qing put the White Mountain Hojas back in power, excuse me, back in power in Kashgar. Within a year, they rebelled. They killed the Qing garrison that was there. Qianlong had to send another army out, uh, 3,000 kilometers, uh, to do battle with these, uh, uh, these uh, uh, rebels, uh, and uh, finally succeeded in asserting uh, direct Qing control over not just Tsungaria, but also Kashgaria. And it's at this point that the southern part of Xinjiang became incorporated directly with a China-based empire for the very first time ever. Qianlong was very, very proud of this accomplishment. He had copper engravings made in Paris and distributed to European royalty as well as his own friends and, and foes to make sure they knew what kind of a guy they were dealing with when they were dealing with Qianlong and the Qing. Uh, the, uh, the artifacts from this conquest are very, very rich uh, and provide a very interesting uh, insight into the, the acquisition of this part of the empire uh, for the Qing and what it meant for the Qing and later for China. Really, the acquisition of uh, this region was an unintended consequence, I would say, of the Manchus' overall frontier policy. At first, nobody in China was really very interested in Xinjiang. They thought it was a waste of money. They thought it was a waste of time. It was a couple of generations uh, before uh, attitudes changed, and uh, it was decided uh, by Chinese, Han Chinese political elites in Beijing that this was something worth holding on to. There was a big debate about it, actually, in the 1860s and 1870s uh, when there was an independent kingdom, a sultanate established in uh, the region. Uh, the Chinese, uh, that is to say the Qing, uh, finally agreed uh, that they should send in an army, but not without debate. Many officials thought that, they should just, that it should just go its own way, that this was not really part of uh, the realm. Uh, but that argument did not win the day, uh, and Xinjiang was re reconquered in 1881. Uh, and uh, three years later, uh, in 1884, Xinjiang was made a formal province of the empire. Now, very briefly, on the, on the 20th century, the situation in, in Xinjiang remained relatively stable compared with the rest of China. There were three different uh, warlord, we call them warlord leaders. Uh, all were Han Chinese not really models of statesmanship, but they did manage to keep the region more or less uh, intact, uh, even if they were very ruthless about eliminating their political enemies. All of these governors paid lip service uh, to the idea that Xinjiang was part of the Republic of China, but they were also very careful to maintain very good relations with the Soviet Union. And uh, in particular, uh, the governor between 1933 and 1944 turned Xinjiang virtually into a Soviet satellite. Uh, so uh, where Xinjiang would go in the middle of the 20th century was by no means a foregone conclusion. Uh, the Chinese communists, when they took power in 1949, uh, successfully reintegrated uh, Xinjiang into uh, the territory of uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, and uh, in 1955, as I mentioned before, uh, they formally constituted it as one of the autonomous regions of the country. Now, the fate of the Uyghurs in the PRC has been something of a mixed bag, I think. Uh, nobody would disagree with that. Well, no, probably some people would disagree with that. 
on the one hand, according to the constitutions that have been promulgated in China, there have been four, uh, Uyghurs are guaranteed equal rights uh, with Han and other nationalities. There's not to be any ethnic discrimination. Uh, they are guaranteed freedom of worship. Uh, they are guaranteed a greater say over local affairs, uh, a recognition of uh, cultural differences between themselves and the Han. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, economic development uh, in, uh, in Xinjiang, uh, to be sure. This has been a priority of the state, especially in, in recent years. And the standard of living, uh, particularly for urbanites, has, I mean, it's totally changed. It's uh, far, far improved from what it was even, even 25 years ago. Uh, going back to, 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 to Urumqi after not having been there for 20 years, I could scarcely believe uh, my eyes. Um, so you know, infrastructure is much improved and so forth. Um, but I think we have to note that autonomy in uh, Xinjiang is largely an illusion, uh, that the main beneficiaries of state investment are city dwellers, which tends to mean that they are Han, immigrants and not uh, Uyghurs. Uh, unemployment is disproportionately high among Uyghurs. Uh, discrimination, even in ads that are printed in the newspaper which say Uyghurs need not apply, uh, is very, very common. Uh, religious freedom is hampered, gerrymandering of ethnic districts so that Uyghurs actually don't have control over uh, very many districts of the, of the region uh, is what uh, was, was taken care of. Uh, and uh, the party, when uh, it did land reform in the 1950s, seized all the holdings, all the waqf holdings of uh, the mosques and mazars, uh, so that uh, these are not independent establishments uh, anymore. Educational opportunities also tend to be favored, uh, stewed in favor, uh, favor of the Han as well. Now, policy towards Xinjiang has uh, vacillated greatly. Uh, over the last uh, 60 years. Uh, depending on when you look, you see things relatively relaxed or uh, relatively strict. Uh, this has a lot to do with political swings at the center, with nationality policy as it shifts. Uh, and uh, I think we can say that while the, the uh, 50s and 60s were fairly permissive, the 60s and 70s were fairly, fairly uh, strict, very difficult time uh, to, uh, to be in China, period, uh, I think, uh, for many people. Uh, and difficult, especially in uh, Xinjiang, where a resurgence of Han chauvinism uh, and uh, racism against Uyghurs became uh, very common. Islam was suppressed. Uyghur language uh, was, uh, use of the Uyghur language was discouraged. Mosques were closed. Some were turned into pigsties. I mean, it was, it was, it was a bad time. Uh, the Arabic script was abandoned for a while in favor of a Latin script, uh, a reform that uh, later was abandoned in the 1980s when we see much more reform uh, or more liberal policies, uh, greater leeway for ethnic diversity and religious practice and, and so forth. Uh, these have, I think, contributed to a great improvement of life uh, for many, many people in, uh, in Xinjiang, uh, but they also fuel expectations and you always have that problem with the disappointment of uh, rising expectations. Ultimately, I think that discussions over what it meant to be Uyghur what it meant to be Uyghur and Muslim, what it meant to be Uyghur and Muslim and a citizen of the People's Republic of China uh, are discussions that do not happen with total freedom. Uh, and uh, they have resulted in uh, a fair amount of uh, discontent uh, among uh, some portions of the population. Uh, 
by the late 1980s, a lot of this discontent had been focused, uh, as in Tibet, in religious establishments like mosques and madrasas. Uh, so that in the 1990s, we see this pendulum swinging back the other way, uh, where uh, Uyghurs uh, were, um, in 1990, there was a, a, a terrible incident in which 3,000 Uyghurs reportedly were killed in fighting with Chinese police in a town in the far south. Uh, and I think that this marks the beginning of a period of heightened tension uh, between uh, Uyghurs and Han in Xinjiang, which continues uh, until, uh, until today. I've gone over time, so let me, let me skip this uh, last bit here uh, and uh, say that if you ask people what's the situation like in, in Xinjiang today, it really depends. You'll get an answer to, that will vary depending on who you ask, on whom you ask. Uh, many Uyghurs, probably most Uyghurs, would tell you things are worse. Uh, they will tell you complaints about how they are treated as second-class citizens. Uh, they don't have as many opportunities. Uh, that government policy is ruining their culture. It's taking away you, – you can't go into a mosque if you're under 18, for example. Um, the, the, the schools schedule special sessions that happen on Fridays during Ramadan, so you can't keep a fast. Uh, all kinds of, of ways in which, in which policies make it really hard uh, to be uh, a Muslim in, in this part of China. Uh, but if you talk to Han Chinese, you get a very different response. Uh, they, they point to the tremendous uh, improvements in, in life for people. Uh, people are living longer. They have better health care. Uh, the place is, is, uh, is cleaner and, and, and so forth. Uh, so... Uh, you know, this is uh, a, a very difficult uh, one to call. Uh, from where I sit, it seems to me that the problem uh, is not one that's going to go away uh, anytime soon. It's really an intractable uh, situation. Um, the events of the last uh, three weeks ago, uh, here you have a scene, a picture I took myself just a couple of years ago, a, a nice summer day uh, in People's Square in Xinjiang. You see uh, people here buying refreshments. There's a little kind of a kiddie park here. There's a movie screen at night. Everybody gets out, and, and uh, it's still quite warm. And you watch movies here, drink a beer, sit out with your friends. Um, this was the scene just three weeks ago. Uh, you see uh, police, armed police, uh, massed here. Uh, their vehicles here, uh, nobody on the square, of course. Uh, the protests um, of the previous day uh, had resulted in scenes like this and terrible, just terrible, terrible carnage. Uh, 190, they say, uh, I mean, reports vary here, 190 killed. Uh, we don't know how many of these were Han, how many were Uyghur. Most reports say they were mostly, mostly Han. This violence sparked by ethnic violence in Guangzhou thousands of miles away uh, when uh, Han Chinese factory workers, unhappy that uh, their jobs were being taken by Uyghurs willing to work for less money, began a rumor that Uyghur men had raped Chinese girls, which was utterly untrue, but resulted in a bloody assault in which two Uyghur men died, beaten to death on the street. Uh, so these problems are not local problems. They are national problems. They are problems that get right to the heart of what China, what kind of a place China wants to be, what kind of a country uh, China wants uh, to be uh, today. Uh, Heart-rending pictures that for many of us brought back memories of 1989 uh, where uh, ordinary citizens are going uh, to talk 
uh, to uh, uh, police, uh, pleading with them, uh, and uh, looks of mistrust being given uh, on, on both sides. I'd like, to be end, I'd like to be able to end on a, on a hopeful note, but uh, it's difficult. Uh, I think that the situation in Xinjiang today is as stable, as unstable as, and dangerous as it is in Tibet. It's plain that the PRC policy in Xinjiang is not working very well, uh, and I, I think that the, uh, the situation will only improve if the government either decides to adapt a different kind of policy, a different modus vivendi uh, that's more uh, tolerant of the of local rights of, of, of indigenous people, uh, or if the number of Han living in Xinjiang becomes so overwhelming that what the Uyghurs say or think doesn't matter anymore. And that's an unfortunate outcome, but it is certainly not an unprecedented outcome, the very outcome that in my country happened with uh, Native Americans in the previous century. And uh, although I don't know very much about the situation here in Australia, I think that the comparison with the situation of Aboriginal peoples is, is not entirely off base either in terms of a potential outcome at some point uh, way, uh, way down the line. Um, but I don't think that these are actually very new problems. These are problems that uh, all governments based in China have always had a difficult time with, the frontier problem. Uh, the Manchus solved this problem, but that doesn't mean that the problem was solved forever. And I think that today's leaders in Beijing must be aware that there's no Chinese-based Han government that has ever successfully ruled the frontier areas for a very, very long time, as long as the Manchus did or the Mongols. Uh, this must weigh on their minds, and they must be aware of the very difficult predicament uh, they are in uh, today. They must find some kind of a balance between preserving Chinese sovereignty on the one hand uh, and uh, allowing people to live their lives uh, in peace and, and happiness on the other. Uh, finding this balance is crucial for the continued legitimacy of the party, it seems to me, and it will need, I think, to move very carefully as it attempts to figure out how to solve these issues on the old Silk Road. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Julie Ewington, Head of the Australian Art at Queensland Art Gallery, who will give a vote of thanks. I've got two books here, but, but only one of them is, is the customary present for Professor Mark Elliott. And so I'm going to start my vote of thanks in a slightly self-serving way and say that upstairs we have an exhibition by an Australian called Tim Johnson and it's a little known fact about Australian art that the Australian Parliament holds a painting called Illusory City which is based on cave number 105 at Don Huang and that is upstairs but of course when the artist researched it he used frightful old black and white photocopies out of libraries, and so the painting is a bit of a, a translation. It's a painting from the late 80s. And now, of course, since the Chinese have done so much archaeological work in Don Huang, partly to encourage tourism, and they've all got these marvellous and terribly expensive multicoloured, you know, new publications, of course, he can now compare his previous research with the current publication and find out that 
it's rather different. If I just tell you that uh, the great scholar Roger Benjamin thought this was a painting about the Western Desert, and in fact it's the illusory city towards which the Buddhist uh, pilgrims are proceeding, you'll see how mistaken one can be if one works off old photocopies. But the point about this, I suppose, is that some of the things that we're interested in here at the Queensland Art Gallery touch and cross with the things that the Griffith Asia Institute is interested in. And that is very much about our relationships with different Asian neighbours and different Asian cultures. It was so wonderful to hear such an informed and beautifully crafted lecture to let us know a little bit about the long and complex history of Xinjiang which I didn't know until today was the place that I used to see on old, on old atlases. I used to call Sinkian, wonder where it was all those times ago. To hear through the years, through the centuries, what has happened was an absolute revelation because there is an enormous interest, in, I think. I was just telling Colin before, I think there is an interest. People have been following the events in Urumqi very closely in the papers and on television here. And we all wonder, of course, what is the relationship of that story to the much better known story of Tibet and you know, the other autonomous region. I think what Mark's done for us tonight is to give us a little bit of a sense of how complex and long this history is and to tell us not only a little bit about the Uyghur people and, and what, what is happening there, but also quite a lot about China and the, the great and complex story of Chinese history throughout all these centuries and how carefully and how long we must in ourselves study it as Australians in the region if we don't have any chance of seeing how we're going to go forward. Can I thank you on behalf of us all very much for a marvellous lecture. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.